Hello, Dr. Dyke Drummond here at the home of TheHappyMD.com in beautiful Seattle, Washington. Welcome to the latest episode of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Tools so you can recognize and prevent your own burnout. Stories of burnout put to its highest and best use. And wellness leadership strategies. Everything you need to be a physician on purpose. Well, hey, hello again. This is Dyke Drummond at the next Physicians on Purpose podcast. My guest today is Paul Deschamps. He's a family practice doctor, a CEO, a lean black belt, and an expert in the new EM coding changes that came down as we turned the year into 2021. And uh, what I want to do with Paul today is to give you a 20,000 foot view on these coding changes the spirit in which they were written, how to actually think about coding in 2021 and how your thought process may need to change a little bit. And let me start with a quick disclaimer. Nothing we're about to share with you is meant to replace any sort of training that your employer or society or anybody else would want to put you through to tell you specifically what to code for what level of service. So, uh, Paul, welcome to the show. <laughs> Tell everybody just a little bit about who you are and what kind of doc you are and what your career course has been, because you've had a very interesting career. And then we can dive in a little bit into these EM changes. Yeah, thanks. No, I'm happy to be here, Dyke. I really appreciate the opportunity. So, who am I? I've, you nailed it. I'm a family doc. I've had multiple uh, management experiences. I've practiced for 25 years in multiple different settings. During that time, had uh, multiple different management roles as well. Practicing in the Bay Area in California. I spent eight years actually a great job practicing in Breckenridge, Colorado as town family doc and an ER doc at the base of the ski hill. Also did management there. I merged five small groups into a moderate size group there. Um, worked at Geisinger, you know, one of the more premier known health systems in the country for a number of years. Was CEO of a 300 physician group in the Central Valley of California. And then spent the last six years actually consulting with health system leaders around the country on reducing burnout. Good golly, what have you not done? <laughs> <laughs> I would say I haven't gone to Disneyland, but I actually have gone to Disneyland. There you so, go. <laughs> uh, not in the past year, that's for sure. I haven't gone anywhere in the past year. My work has been driven by practicing as a family doc, running into barriers and frustrations that I would have trying to do my job, you know, my, and my job really was connecting with my patient, figuring out what they needed and getting them the best care I could. As there's so many multiple barriers and frustrations all of us run into, not sitting back and just dealing with it, but actually speaking up with the thought that I could make a difference. That got me onto a committee, that got me to into a leadership position. I gradually moved up leadership ranks in that process. When I became CEO, it struck me I really had an opportunity to do something different. So I led the organization through a transformation around the theme of returning joy to patient care, about making a great life for doctors so that they could then give great care to patients. Particularly, we needed that because we were in the Central Valley of California, which is not the most desirable place to live, especially when the Bay Area is only an hour and a half away. So we needed to have a great professional experience so we could get great docs because the personal ex family experience was not as attractive. Uh, they're nice towns, don't get me wrong, um, and I enjoyed living there. But in terms of trying to compete for recruiting against some of these right. other places, that was a challenge. So in all of this, you know, there are ways that we can fix the workplace. And my basic core uh, philosophy now is the problem with burnout 
is the workplace, not the worker. And we can fix the workplace. And it takes a combination of all those things of certainly support for individual physicians uh, to deal with the challenges. And clinicians need support. Even if the workplace was perfect, we need that support. But there's so much we can do to fix a workflow. And there's so much we can do to fix the management system and culture to create support that those are areas that I really focus on a lot. But lately... And, uh, and hang on a second, Paul. I just want everybody to know with that introduction, Paul's going to be back for a future podcast to talk about the journey to leadership for a hardworking, smart family doc like him and what enabled him to make that transition to CEO. He's also going to be back to talk to us about lean and process improvement. And today, what we're going to do is just introduce you to Paul uh, based on his facility with EM. And if I can just interject, a lot of times when I hear people talk about we need to change the system, we need to change the laws, we need a union, lots of different things that people call out for. You can change your own reality internally in a heartbeat. You can change your own practice fairly simply too. But you know what? There are larger forces at work and EM code changes, this particular set of EM code changes that were rolled out here in 2021 are a piece of a movement to restore some balance to the force. So with that as a preamble, Paul's going to show us a little bit about how to change your thinking about building and coding here in 2021. Great. <laughs> I love the way that you can capture it and, and put everything into perspective to help people understand what, what we're talking about in ways that are meaningful to them. Oh, come on. You're making me blush. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, E&M yeah. changes 2021. And, and I'll say also with uh, disclaimers, whatever I say, I'm not recommending that this is the way you code and I'm not guaranteeing you you know, that this will work for you in your situation. These are concepts. And I'll talk some about some of the initial challenges that are happening because we're recording this right at the end of January in 2021. It's all just being deployed and there's a lot of uncertainty that's cropped up since it's gotten started. The basic concept is that cognitive work has been under-rewarded in healthcare ever since these first guidelines first went into place. And they first went into place, I was around back in 95 when they first got rolled out and they were a mess and people rebelled. And so they got fixed a little bit in 97. The word was that within a few more years, they'd get fixed again. Well, here we are 24 years later, and it's finally the next change. Yay! These guidelines. <laughs> so, um, you know, the typical, the rate at which bureaucracy and government and everything work and what gets, what happens. So there's been a tremendous amount of effort that went into designing this. And it's, it's a huge change because up to now, in order to get reimbursed and to assign a code that felt like it was worth the value of the effort you put into your visit with that patient, you had to gather a lot and capture a lot of information out of the history, including past social family history, reviews of multiple systems. Um, and then in your exam, again, you had to capture a lot of different issues in the exam and then understand some fairly arcane issues around medical decision-making and how to get credit for the what you did in medical decision-making. Now, Unless you just pulled out a scalpel and cut them and charged for the oh, procedure. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Unless that, absolutely. And then the other unless is if you just bill on time, but in, inevitably you can do far better with your productivity and your and your compensation if you're billing the charges based on the RVUs rather than whatever it is, the, the medical decision-making following the system than billing just on time. Now the new process uh, completely gets rid of anything that needs to be recorded 
in the history and physical. It's all on medical decision making. So that's a big change. And a lot of people historically, you know, have been copy and pasting previous notes into the current note in hopes that it'll capture past social family history and things like that, that you no longer need to do. And in fact, one of the problems with the old system was it created so much note bloat because people would think if I just put a whole bunch of stuff into my note, somehow what I need to have in there so that when an auditor comes and checks my note, they'll find it and I can justify the code that I assigned. You, you don't need to worry about that anymore. Now, I don't need to, let's just delineate this as clearly as possible without, with everybody realizing this is not, this is our not- interpretation in January 2021 of what this means. No longer does it appear that you have to do what? You don't have to capture the elements of the history and physical in order to assign your code, your level two, three, four, uh, five. It's gotten away from that. Now, you want to document pertinent stuff from your history and physical, obviously, and that can make a difference uh, just in terms of then justifying what you include in your medical decision-making. But in terms of what's going to get audited, that what gets audited are three components of medical decision-making. One. The first one is the problems, the number and complexity of the problems. Two. The second is the data, and there's a variety of data uh, in ways that data gets captured and identified. Three. Third is is risk, and risk is very specific. It's the risk of the treatment or approach that you take with the patient. It's not the what we traditionally think of as this patient's at risk because they've got multiple illnesses, um, or their or their diabetes has progressed so far. That risk is all incorporated in the problem element, that first element, not in what when the risk element is all about the risk of what I'm doing to the patient instead. That's one thing that people get confused on. So if, I, if I'm going to associate a little metaphor or a word phrase, I'm going to say in previous years, the code was front-loaded. It was stuff that you put into the H&P on the front end that determined the code. Yeah. Now, we're back, now we're back-loaded, right? Yeah. And yeah. you're saying that risk is not how risky the patient is because of their characteristics. Risk is what I'm doing with the patient. Correct. Okay, Correct. great. Yeah, the risk previously... Uh, much of the documentation you needed to get your code was front-loaded. We call it the top of the note in the old SOAP approach. In fact, there's been a lot of talk in the last few years about changing a SOAP note to an APSO note, because let's face it, if you're going to look at somebody else's note, you're not going to waste your time looking at the history and physical. You go right to what's the assessment and plan that that person had on that last note. That's what I need to know to know what I'm doing next. And maybe I'll fill in the details if I go to the history and physical. So this well, is all really the AP. I've got a question for you because I've been a patient recently. Uh-huh. And I've talked to a lot of doctors who have been patients recently. And those of us that are old school, right? Boomers, I'm 62. We're appalled by the quality of the physical exam we don't get these days. What about documenting physical exam in the new era here in 2021? There's no required documentation of the physical for using this coding system. So let's back up a little bit. If you're seeing a patient with congestive failure, and you know the, the key question in the problem element of this is how severe is that a particular chronic disease the patient has? Well, if in your exam, you know, you can document three plus bilateral lower leg edema for a congestive heart failure patient, that's an important piece of the physical exam you want to document in your exam. So you do, I mean, you want to have pertinent physical exam, but you don't need anything else. And I agree, things have changed, you know. I mean, nobody would ever let me use a stethoscope through a shirt on somebody 
when I was going through my training, but now that's now that's commonplace. And maybe that's not so bad, actually. You know, we, we're not so sure. Um, Depends but, on the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> what I don't have to do is I don't have to lie about having looked in their ears and looked in their throat and all this stuff that gets copied and pasted in that didn't right. happen. Right. You don't have to use that template that automatically pumps everything in. Hopefully we won't see... You know, uh, so many men having pelvic exams and so many women having prostate exam uh, because uh, we're just not going to be using those automatic template things. And there's no need to do that anymore. You could just simply put in the pertinent positives and, and then you, if there are pertinent negatives, but you certainly don't have to go through the whole thing. Excellent. Um, and it won't make a difference. And in fact, so one you know key example, if you work in an urgent care, a new patient who comes in and that patient's got unstable angina and you're packing them up to get them to the ED as fast as possible. In the old system, you, it was really hard to get to a 205, which is what you would really deserve, a 99205 for that patient, a new patient with really high acuity, because you had to document so much history and physical that didn't really matter in order to get the number of elements that you needed. Right. Here they are yeah. with unstable engine. And you, did you do a rectal exam? Give me a break. <laughs> right. 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 Exactly. You know. Yeah, did you check 12 reviews of systems? Um, there you go. And now, you know, the problem is an acute, unstable problem that's threatening life, and the, the, your decision-making is the decision to send that patient to the hospital, that's all you need to charge a level five. And so that's much better. We can briefly go through what each of these elements entails, and maybe that would be helpful. The problem element now, they call these three divisions of it the elements. There's that problem element, data element, and risk element. In the problem element, there's acute problems and chronic problems. And in your acute problems, you know, you're looking at What's your differential diagnosis of this patient to get to that problem? How severe is that problem? Is it a potential that this is going to worsen into something else like a UTI turning into pyelonephritis? You know, is this problem due to some other problem? All those factors come into the level of risk involved with that condition, not the risk of the carrier providing, the risk of the condition. And that's what we normally think of as risk. But so that's why you have to kind of think differently. With acute problems, you go through that quick assessment. For chronic problems, well, what you're assessing is what's the progression, what's the status of this chronic problem? You know, is it totally well controlled? Is it mildly progressed or does it have severe progression? And there's parameters around which to look at that, you know, the well-controlled, stable chronic problem that's not worsening, like a patient with blood pressure, they've got hypertension, you've seen them once a year, they're on their meds, they're stable, they're doing fine. Well, there's not very many patients like that anymore anyway. That's your level three patient is that person is perfectly stable, comes in for a once a year check and has no other problems. Probably you're lucky if they're 5% of your practice, at least in terms of giving you a break in your day. Usually it's less than that. Almost everybody with a chronic disease already has either that chronic disease is not well controlled or has progressed some, or that patient has more than one chronic disease, in which case that's already a level four visit from the problem standpoint. So if I've, got, so if I've got coronary artery disease or hypertension, I've got diabetes, boom, four, right? Oh, you're at least a level, that's going to be at least a level four visit for sure. Boom. Because you'll be gathering data that you'll need to, to assess all those um, and you're going to be making decisions. So there's some new things that have, you know, in recognizing cognitive work, even though it's something we don't think of as such a big deal, managing a hypertensive patient on an ACE combo with a, with a diuretic, you know, you're refilling their med. You may be checking a renal panel, and right there, you're at a level four visit. Wow, cool. 
And that that alone, you know, you think, well, wow, that's a level four. But when you realize it doesn't seem like a big deal when you're doing that, but you have done this, you do it dozens of times a day, thousands of times a year, tens of thousands of times in your career, where you automatically go through, just rapidly go through all the assessment and evaluation it takes to make those decisions. You're just so good at it, but it's because you've had all the training, skill, and experience to get there that gives you that. And that training, skill, and experience is of value. And CMS is now starting to recognize that. If you're meeting the what the what the directives of the coding guidelines say, never feel guilty about about assigning that code. Well, and, and I, what I'm going to do is just bring in the thought about an elite athlete, right? When yeah. you are you are practicing your craft as an elite athlete, the highest level is unconsciously competent, right? So. They even say, Michael Jordan was so on fire tonight, he was unconscious. It's like, well, you do it automatically, but that doesn't mean that it's any less complex than the first time you did it. Right. Except the first time you did it back in medical school, it took you two hours and you got it wrong. You do it in 15 seconds and you get it right. And it's because of all that experience uh, that makes such a difference. So yeah, so the problem, there's it breaks into acute or chronic with the chronic there's a stable chronic disease that shows no sign of worsening. That's a level three. A level four is progression. You know, a, a patient who actually is on uh, multiple meds it can be considered a patient with progression. If the patient's not at their target, that's considered progression. These are level four uh, conditions. And then if the patient has severe progression, um, so that they're, and actually severe progression, it's interesting. Uh, one specific example of this is a diabetic on insulin. If you've got a diabetic, they've been on insulin for a while, they're well-controlled, they great A1Cs, they're stable as a rock. Would that patient be a level five patient from a chronic disease standpoint? Well, what CMS is looking at this as is that, that underlying disease state or pathology has progressed to the point that that patient can't control their glucose without exogenous insulin. So, so that's a significant disease that you're taking care of. And even if you're able to take care of it and keep it very stable, there's significance there in the degree of work and intensity and knowledge you need to take care for that patient. So that's a level five. And you mentioned earlier, you have an endocrinologist that you talk with who says all their visits are level five now. That, the right there, you know, anybody who's on insulin is, is a, that problem element is level five. My friend who said that is also, I sort of held my breath when she said it. She says, I'm the fourth largest prescriber of insulin in the United States of America. Wow. Wow. <laughs> That's a busy practice. Uh, <laughs> if I can just stop you for a second, insulin's high risk. Yes. I can kill you with insulin in what, about, yeah, yeah. 50, about 15 minutes? Yeah. So oh, the sure. fact that they're on insulin is not only the severity of the disease, but the risk involved in the treatment. Well, so that's an interesting point because that's one of the things that's still being debated and worked out in terms of the actual um, understanding the definitions of the risk element. Because in the risk element, there's if you think of level three, four, and five, oh, you notice we're not talking about level twos at all because a level two is a minimal problem with minimal data and no risk at all. Well, involved. that's somebody who doesn't need to see a doctor. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's kind of like, you know, if, if maybe if you're a pediatrician, you're doing an ear recheck and the kid's perfectly well, that counts. If a patient of yours it notices a skin tag on themselves. They don't know what it is, and they decide to come in and see you about it. That yep, that's a skin tag. <laughs> <laughs> but that's it. So really, the issue is to get to level five from a risk standpoint in terms of, so I'm sorry, level four risk 
from a medication standpoint, would be over-the-counter medications. Uh, from a level four, from a risk standpoint, it's a prescription. And it doesn't matter whether you're refilling a med or starting a med. It doesn't matter whether that med's amoxicillin or a combo uh, antihypertensive or insulin. All meds are considered a level four if you're managing the medicine, if you're refilling it, if you're starting it. That's level four. For level five regarding medicines, you have to screen for a toxic effect of the medicine. So if you start a diuretic and you check a renal panel, that's considered screening for toxicity because it's a negative effect, not the intended effect of the medicine. Right. With insulin, at least right now, it's not clear that you're giving insulin for the therapeutic effect, not for a toxic effect. And if you're checking it, to the reason to get that level five credit isn't the medicine you've prescribed. It's the screening for the toxic effect. And if you're checking a glucose after ingesting insulin or any oral hypoglycemic, in a sense, you're checking for two things. You're checking for the therapeutic effect, and you're also checking for potential toxic effect. But depending on who you talk to about the interpretation of that, they may interpret it that if you're screening, if you're checking glucoses or A1Cs after you've made a change in a diabetics treatment, that's really looking not at the toxic effect, but at the therapeutic effect. In this sense, that doesn't count for level five risk for that. That's the kind of arcane stuff that happens. Level so four. Okay. Let's just put another disclaimer in here. Like you said earlier, we're in January, 2021. Obviously, if you know what you're doing, you're going to be coding higher than you did in 2020. Mm -hmm. The real question is, where will the marketplace equilibrate? So yeah. for instance, are the folks at the payers, and remember there are hundreds of payers in the United States of America. We don't just have one like in Canada where we could get a single answer, but are they going to start rejecting your claims willy-nilly, going to throw a billion of them back in your face? Or are they going to accept these over time, get beat down to accept these, but then cut your payment? You were telling me about payment again earlier, Paul. So let's talk a little bit about payment too. And you tell me, I don't think we're probably going to know how this re-equilibrates in the marketplace until probably, what, third quarter of this year when it all shakes out? Oh, I don't have no idea how soon that'll be with you know so many things up in the air right now. What is known is that the RVU values for each of the E&M codes has gone up uh, somewhere between 10 to 25%, uh, depending on the E&M code. So in, not only can you code at a higher level because the the rules are designed to give you the opportunity using E&M codes to code them at a higher level. But each E&M code actually has a higher RVU value associated with it. What the payers will likely do is they're not going to impact the RVU value. They'll change the conversion rate of the R, you know, what that RVU value turns into in dollars. That's where the issue would come up. The other issue could come up in how tightly they audit the notes. And I don't know if there's going to be a clear national standard for some of the intricacies around uh, the other requirements, like in the data elements, you can get credit for ordering a test or for reviewing a test. Or if you do an EKG in the office, but a cardiologist is going to overread that, but you use you do your own reading to make a decision about caring for that patient in real time. Some approaches, you can actually get some additional credit for that in your data element. But there's questions about that as well that vary from group to group, from payer to payer. So there's an awful lot of messiness that still needs to get worked out around all of that as well. Cool. So, you know, take the guidance you can get from the best sources you can get within your own organization or from, you know, other organizations. You know, I know the AAFP has been putting out a lot of stuff about how to code properly and others are as well. The AMA 
uh, you know, they designed these, they've got a lot of guidance out there. You know, you can look at all of that. You got to try to make the best honest decision you can and then go with that from there. And philosophically, this is meant to be a pendulum swinging back, rewarding cognitive work at a higher level to restore some of the imbalance that has been in favor of procedural work for a while. (laughs) Procedural docs are not happy about this because it's actually in order to in order to add more compensation for cognitive work, CMS has actually ratcheted back on compensation for procedural work. Do you know how far they ratcheted back this year? I, I don't I don't have I don't know the re- relative numbers and and I, I imagine it may even vary um, you know specialty by specialty procedure by procedure. Interesting, interesting, lovely. So is that enough of an aliquot of EM code stuff for now, Paul, or do we need to give put a couple more things in, or is that a pause point for us? You know, I think uh, just to briefly review what I've the key points out of what I said, you don't have to bloat the front of your note. There's no value in adding anything other than what's actually pertinent to the care of that particular patient. Secondly, look closely at the rules, at the guidelines, and the definitions that go with those guidelines. In your problem element, is it acute or chronic? And what level is it at? Uh, In the data element, we haven't talked much about it, but there's an awful lot of opportunity in the data element there. And then um, in the risk element, the risk is not about the patient's risk. The risk is about the risk of your treatment of the patient. And think of it in that way. And one last quick note, the way that these codes get assigned is there's those three elements. They each get graded to a level, you know, two through five. And then the rule is that you take the lowest of those levels and eliminate that and assign the code for that visit to the next highest level. So if in your visit, your problem was a level three, your data was a level four, and your risk was a level five, you would eliminate the level three, and this would be a level four visit. And then because there's no difference between new and established patients now, if it's a new patient, it's a 204. If it's an established patient, it's a 214. You don't have different rules for new and established patients. Gotcha. Anything else they need to know? For now. Hang in there. Don't be surprised if things change and don't get frustrated with the coders you work with if they're coming and telling you that things are changing. It's not their fault. The whole country, the whole system's going through figuring this out. So I figure it's going to change some just enroll with it. And I think the whole thing is going to be fluid. You know, what do the payers do when these codes start to change and they violate their algorithms and they're seeing you as an outlier? They're going to have to reset their systems for monitoring folks uh, with the frequency of the of the level fives that they produce. Mm -hmm. There's going to be changes in conversion rates and all of that. And then let me go to the final, the last mile, as they Mm -hmm. say there's probably going to be adjustments in your compensation formula from your employer at some point too. Because what we've been talking about is what the payers pay your employer. There could be internal adjustments to comp formulas as well. Oh, sure. Absolutely. You know, every health system, medical group, whatever, is going to have to figure out as all of a sudden everybody's productivity starts to change. How does that change the redistribution of the compensation money within the group? Yep, because that's where your paycheck comes from. It's a translation of funding from the payers through the overhead of your group and whatever is left, or little bit is ever left, is coming into your paycheck. Well, Paul, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Paul Deschamps, he is, uh, he's one of the good guys, Aline. He's family doc, ex-CEO. He's going to be back here to talk about his leadership journey and about you know 16 different ways that you can really screw up when you lo- use lean as a weapon instead of a process improvement <laughs> technology. We'll have him back on a bunch of future shows. 
I'm looking forward to it. Thanks. Right on. Yep. Dyke Drum and Light, this latest edition of the Physicians on Purpose podcast. Keep breathing. Have a great rest of your day.